Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riando, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This week, we're talking about political resistance in games because, Rob, we live in a new and terrifying, terrifying world right now. The last time we recorded was just before the election. It was just a couple of days before the election, and I think people were a little nervous. And when I say people, I, I mean a whole lot of people that I know. Uh, we're maybe a little nervous, but didn't expect things to go down uh, the way they did, uh, necessarily. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I was like, I was not remotely nervous, um, and apparently not not enough people on the Clinton team were either. But <laughs> like, I had legitimately like, obviously, I was a little concerned by the fact like the polls had tightened at the last minute. But yeah, I, I like, I had no doubts that this was going to break pretty much. Uh, the way we were all expecting. And I think part of that also was like, I was really hoping for just a real honest to God, like electoral thumping. Uh, so that like a lot of the forces that have been unleashed in the past, like 18 months could be like decisively defeated. Uh, but (laughs) now here we are. Uh, yeah, I was actually streaming. So at waypoint we were like, okay. I got bagels for my team that day, and I was like, "Okay, everybody, we're gonna we're gonna get through this." And we were doing sort of like comfort streams, like, "Okay, things are are ridiculous." And you know, around nine p.m. to you know whatever eleven p.m. or whatever it was, the really when the numbers start coming in, I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna stream." And I was streaming NES classic games and having a nice time. And you know, I saw some stuff coming in the chat, but I I didn't have a sense of just how. <laughs> how wrong everything had turned. Um, and I stopped the stream and I was like, good night, everybody, you know, good luck. Hopefully things will be okay. Got off, saw that the world was just dying in a, in a trash fire. And uh, I went and I sat down on the couch for a few minutes and my, my girlfriend was asleep and I didn't have the heart to wake her and tell her that the world was ending. Uh, so I, I went back and I did more streaming and it was sort of a, a place of comfort for a lot of very upset people and we we played dropsy uh for the second one i was like i am just gonna play something that is happy and nice in a terrible world because that's sort of the the point of dropsy that he cares about everybody even though everybody's an asshole to him and he's a caring scary looking clown who cares and it was just the solve i needed at the time uh and i sort of had this weird feeling of um so in in 2008 you know uh I think a lot of people in sort of my general walk of life were very excited for Obama's election. Uh, but I remember my girlfriend waking me up, um, girlfriend at the time waking me up that next morning and saying, Obama won, but we lost because marriage had been on the ballot. Gay marriage had been on the ballot in California. And it was sort of the biggest battle at that point for marriage equality. Um, and everybody was really excited about it, really ramped up for it and really like, okay, we're going to, we're going to win this. This is the first time we're going to win marriage by an electoral you know, sort of a, a ballot initiative. We're going to do this. We're going to make it work. Um, and it lost. And yes, uh, a few years later, marriage would become legal in California again, and then it would be legal 
I'm <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> at least for the time being. Uh, but it was this incredibly bittersweet feeling of like, oh God, I'm so excited about Obama winning the presidency. This is really great. But we we just got trounced. Like my, like people in my situation just got shit on their face. And, you know, uh, I won't kink shame if that's your kink, but you know, I, uh, it, it just wasn't good. It just wasn't great. And I was hoping against hope late on you know uh on tuesday night for the very least the bittersweet thing that well you know something can go right in this election maybe something maybe something will go right in this election maybe there'll be something to feel good about and you know there wasn't really (laughs) it was it was really terrible i suppose that the only kind of cool thing to come out of this election was uh, Portland now has the very first openly queer governor in U.S. history, and we have to take some victories, I suppose. But it was real bad. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously we all have our feelings about it, but um, uh, yeah, just a whole lot of people in, in my life that are, <laughs> that are very, very upset. A lot of my trans friends are very, very upset about, and very rightfully upset about things like getting their passports now and, you know, getting legal name change stuff now because who fucking knows in a few months what things are going to look like. Uh, you know, obviously all my friends who are environmentalists are very upset. All my friends who are queer and, and Muslim and black and, and, and brown and just it's, it's incredibly, incredibly depressing. Um, and the way I'm going to want to tie this into games <laughs> uh, is the... I was at GamerX East this weekend, and it was wonderful. It was actually the most wonderful game event I've ever been to. It was just, you know, GamerX has always been great, something I really enjoy. It's an LGBTQI, you know, all the letters, uh, very inclusive, and, you know, sort of like, you don't have to be gay to go. Like, plenty of people go who are, are not queer. They just really like being in a very welcoming, very inclusive kind of space. There's good programming. There's good uh, panels and such. And, you know, I'm tooting my own horn. I was on a couple of panels. Uh, but Catherine Cross actually gave the sort of closing statements, and she's this incredible critic and academic, and uh, she gave a really, really sort of rousing speech about how important community is right now and how important it is to to rally around works of art. And yes, games can can be those things for us. They can be community building things for us. They can be, uh, you know, works that not only give us some, you know, comfort in a difficult time, but also that they can give us a point to be together around and, you know, be good to one another around and actually even sort of spur us onto action sometimes. Uh, so I suppose that's how we arrived at the topic. I'm sorry, Rob, I, I'm going on and on. Uh, this is, this is obviously something we, uh, I think we all have a lot of thoughts on. Yeah, it's, um, you know, this is one of those cases where like, I think for me, it's there's kind of a guilty, a guilty feeling of like, thank God that I have white guy privilege, and like <laughs> this isn't going to like I can't immediately point to the places in my life that this is going to be a uh, an immediate shitstorm, uh, possibly. I mean, that said, like you know, like over the last year, I've definitely. Maybe, like, it's possible also I'm just not used to, like, living in L.A. and, like, how much, like, anti-Latino racism you'll just encounter around yeah. here. 
um, sure. which is uh, sort of surprising to me. Uh, but it's not something that I've dealt with in, in too many places, like, to this level. And part of it is I'm wondering, like, oh, it's just sort of, like, bubbling up and out uh, yeah. right now. Because, uh, yeah. and, and I think this is maybe the feeling I've, I've had throughout a lot of this election and, and where I'm at right now, uh, is that you realize that a lot of things that you let pass hmm. were actually not jokes at all. Yeah. People meant every word of it. And on some level, they hate you and your friends. Yep. And I think that's the been the most sort of sort of shaking realization is like you know if you're if you're a minority um you know all the racist jokes about you uh shit you and your friends probably know even more uh and you know occasionally even tell them to each other uh but the thing is when you hear someone make those jokes like in your presence and like i don't look I don't look like someone whose name could easily and perhaps more accurately be Garcia. Uh, I don't. I don't look like. I don't look like a, a classic Garcia. Um, sure. But you know, there's. That's also meant that a lot of people have felt pretty safe to just sort of spout off whatever in my presence. And I think when you, when in those situations, there's always a temptation. First of all, like in general. And I'm and I'm definitely guilty of this. In general, like nobody wants to make a big thing at mm -hmm. a social occasion or whatever. But then I think the other the other aspect is that a lot of those a lot of those cracks you hear, a lot of the times you hear someone say something offensive or racist or stereotyping, um, there's a temptation, or at least there was until fairly recently, to think, well, the joke there is that nobody would actually believe that. And what sort of horrible person would say that? And we can say that in each other's company because we obviously know that would be unacceptable if it were a deeply held belief. And now I'm sort of like, you know, flipping back through my whole life at all those moments and realizing, yeah. oh no, for you it was a joke because you needed to believe it was a joke. What everyone else in that room was thinking was, secretly we know this is the way it is. Totally. So, I guess that's been the most upsetting aspect of all this. But uh, at the same time, at the same time, I guess there's also a bit of almost relief that it's coming to the surface now that it's like well yeah now you see the monsters kind of yeah because think because this whole election like i mean a lot of a, a lot of us had talked like you know my girlfriend and i were talking before the election where she was like i'm gonna be pretty troubled still living in a country where and she was pretty optimistic but i i agreed at the time where you know that 35 percent of people would look at donald trump and think that's cool. I'm yeah. that that yeah. represents my values and beliefs. And that was already too much. Yeah. Um and what we've learned instead is that 
there is a much deeper rot and sickness uh to our social to our body politic uh than we'd ever really confronted or faced and we should have known there were and and uh, minority groups were on the front lines of this for years, and they confronted it in ways that people like you and I did not have to. Yeah. Um, and so they could, they you know, they knew the wolf uh, was at the door. Uh, but I think a lot of people outside of those groups thought that things things were bad, and there's a lot of evil. But in general, things would work out, and things were on the right track. Um. That's obviously not true. And I guess what I'm sort of relieved about is we could have elected Hillary Clinton and things would have stayed much as they are and we'd have drifted in this direction for uh, at least four more years until a more palatable uh, Republican candidate was found to oppose her. But that would have been an illusion in much the way I think perhaps the last eight years have been illusory in some key ways. Yeah. It's sort of like there's somebody who's incredibly, incredibly drunk at the wheel of a, of an 18 wheeler. And instead of having like, I don't know, a friend who's there to grab the wheel and kind of sort of write things a little bit. This is the country falling off of a cliff in an 18-wheeler full of nitroglycerin and exploding everywhere. And, like, at least at least now we know <laughs> there's yeah. some aspect of it that's like that to me. Um, I likened the whole thing to uh, to sort of finding out, like, a family member has a horrible, yeah. horrible illness. Yeah. Like, a, like a terrible illness. And I went through, I really did go through kind of all the stages of grief. And then now I'm in this sort of stage of like, I need to know everything about this and we're going to fight it. You know, like we're, I'm reading all the literature on, on whatever research was done on this particular form of disease. And now we're going to fight it, baby. Like it's that's very much my uh, my feeling at this point. But I I also like, you know, as somebody who's kind of run around in activist circles for a long time and and like, you know, understand the sort of burnout that also comes from wanting so so much to do the right things and to change things and to to do all the good things that you're supposed to do you know as an activist and as a conscious person in the world to you know take all those actions all those tiny little actions that you can do and do the volunteering and do the phone calls and do the you know marching just to you know show visibility to show support that sort of thing um and still feeling so incredibly incredibly just inadequate like it's never enough. Nothing is ever enough because <laughs> things are so bad and, and things are so much bigger than any individual that it's it's hard to it, it can be hard, you know, and just in general, like it can be very, very difficult to feel effective at a time like this, no matter how hard you're fighting. Uh, but it's still important, I think, to do everything humanly possible that any individual can be expected to do um, because What's the point otherwise, right? Well, and <laughs> you can sit there or or you can fight and you can at least do your your small but important part. Uh, that's my feeling on it, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it is important to remember always that that discouragement um is a feature of the system and not a bug, 
right? That like, and this is this is another like reason why I'm saying like we didn't realize how sick we were, but but now we do. Um, Turnout wasn't great. It was terrible. And yeah, (laughs) like having a candidate like this uh, running was not enough to to get much of the country to turn out uh, and, and vote. And I think part of it is the more like, okay, so like political, political scientists know it, like it is a known fact that the uglier an election gets, uh, the more the turnout is depressed. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's always in the interest of whoever thinks that uh, higher turnout means trouble for them. Uh, always to make that election as ugly and nasty as possible. Ugh, yeah. And it worked here. Um, and I think a lot of our uh, culture sort of enabled that. But, but, but the point is uh, that it's only, you know, it only, it only feels this hopeless in part because a lot of really powerful interests want to make it feel hopeless. You know what I mean? Like they don't want you showing up to your, your town council meetings. They don't want you showing up, uh, to, uh, to, to run for local offices. They don't want you becoming invested in local state house races. Um, they don't want you paying attention, uh, ever, but, at the very fighting least, they, for anything, yeah, you know, for fighting for their their piece of the pie, fighting for their oversized piece of the pie, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I I I I hope at least, um, <laughs> uh, John uh, uh, John Lovett uh, on the Keeping It sixteen hundred podcast during that Good. awful election yeah. night uh, kept saying we should cherish this feeling, and and while this is a a, a far worse and, and scarier outcome. Uh, than than I expected because I I genuinely believe that the election of Donald Trump represents a strategic disaster for the United States. Like the political yes. realist in me, like <laughs> setting aside all my social values, um, this is a this is a massive strategic setback. Uh, I and mean, he the, might drop a fucking nuke on Syria. Like I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, it's it's so fucking terrifying. It's not even. Yeah, I'm a little more concerned about him eroding confidence uh, in NATO to the point that uh, the Baltic states uh, oh, start Christ. to like no longer seem like they're under the umbrella. That scares yeah. the shit out of me. But yeah, uh, but the the point is, um, as scary as this is, I am hoping that we hang on to this feeling and finally sort of wake up from the complacency that sort of plagued us for years where we think, you know, a choice between like a Clinton or a Romney or something uh, is the way of the world. And that's all we have to expect. Right. That's, that's the, that's the best option uh, that that we as a country deserve. Uh, And that's just going to be the reality for the rest of our lives. Um, So I hope this, this feeling lasts forever right yeah. uh yeah. that the, the stakes are appreciated and that the game can somehow be changed uh after all this after all that's, the, that's the completely insane thing about it to me uh it, and and i i genuinely like i don't i don't even unfollow people on facebook i don't usually block people on twitter like i have conversations with people that i think have terrible <laughs> terrible views of the world i 
I spend a lot of time trying to get very outside my bubble and like I consider some of the things that I do to be outside of a lot of the bubbles that I run in the rest of the time and so I, I really genuinely try to be sensitive to this stuff and I and I do I go out of my way to understand why people think the things that they think but the the notion that this will change anything the, the people who voted for Trump who thought yeah we're gonna make America great again like and, and I'm not I'm not talking about the like hardest core racist of the bunch, right? I I know what they think. Yeah, they were they were <laughs> a lost. Cause. I know what they think, and that's yeah. you know nothing's gonna. So so the people who who have some shred of decency to them and 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 voted for Trump, like I I'm trying so hard, you know, to wrap my head around um, the idea that well, you know, he's an asshole, but he'll bring he's gonna change something. He's not a political insider like that. The thinking behind that, the thinking that it's like a, a game, like it's like this is like some fucking Game of Thrones throwdown sort of like it 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 still boggles my mind. And I still have a hard time fully understanding that mindset of like whatever fucking throw the maverick in there. And it's like we could all die <laughs> like this is not, you know, this is not a cool battle with swords against the zombies like we we could all get really fucked up like a lot of bad things can happen like humanity yeah <laughs> bad really bad actual bad shit can really happen with well, this like this is not a toy but at yeah. the same time like where i do get some some sympathy uh for for people who may have voted that way is i understand the impulse and i think you do too to send that brick flying through the window. Oh, sure. To yeah. to look at people who offer you nothing but the status quo and the same empty bromides you've heard for years. Oh, you you know, yes, the factory moved out, but new jobs are going to replace those old jobs, and there'll be better better jobs. I heard I heard Clinton say that in the first debate, and I I, I cringe because we're all fucking tired of hearing that. Like it's not. They're never true. coming back. The economy and, is different. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. and stop touting the jobs growth under you know Obama because for a number of years, like wages are better now. They're they're improving, but for a number of years, boy, the end of that recession did not bring back. It lowered unemployment, but it wasn't the same kind of employment. Yeah. And so I can sort of understand the impulse to say, if all you have to offer is more of this, is more of the last 20 years, then it might be worth it for me to send that brick through the window. Even if, even if the shards are going to, even if the shards are going to land on me, just to see that arrogance wiped off your face for a second. I think that's, I feel like that's, those are the forces we're kind of reckoning with here. Yeah, I I I do agree and I and so much of it so much of that very specific feeling is so so specific to Hillary Clinton being a Clinton and being sort of this like the image of a feminist in a pantsuit that that like <laughs> it's it's actually hard to sort of separate the racism from the sexism from the from the genuine feelings of like our f political system sucks and we need to break it. Like it's so hard. It, it's genuinely hard to like 
separate those feelings because I think for some people there were there's more than one of that pyramid in in a lot of people's oh, yeah. sort of thinking, and that's what that's what makes it hard for me to to empathize with it because it's like I I get the instinct to say fuck this this is fucking terrible I get that part but it's the it's the going with something that is to my mind so obviously more monstrous and horrible that, that I don't understand I suppose yeah I mean like you know what I kept thinking the day after the election is that every reaction is perfectly justified like that's the that's the thing is like I start you start seeing the finger pointing and the the holy shit what just happened kind of reaction and yeah. you know if you voted for Stein I hope you're happy and I'm like all these reactions are justifiable and all of them to an extent are wrong and incomplete. Like they don't like all these, yes. like they don't tell the full story. There is no one reaction that encompasses like the experience. And this is the appropriate way to, to react. Like, cause yes. while I understand the impulse to send that brick through the window, there's also a part of me that is like, we have turned, we have helped adopt the language of pundits. And we talk about campaigns as if, we, we we weigh their sales pitch. Not their policies, but how effectively are they being packaged and sold. And when you become that, like, when you become consumers of politics in that way, you are asking to be sold to. And I yeah. think that's kind of where we've ended up, is this is this this system where, well, that guy scares the hell out of me, but I give Hillary really low marks for laying out a clear and optimistic vision uh, for America. So I guess I'm going to give it to that guy. Like that's, that's <laughs> kind of how it feels like yeah. that, that you somehow are supposed to react to these candidates based on how they've made you feel over the course of their campaign at times, rather than like a brass tacks, you doing your job as a citizen and thinking, okay, what's at stake here? Um, I kept I kept thinking in the wake of this election, as we started talking, as as all the uh, articles of like, um, you know, white anger, white frustration, uh, boiling out and, and costing the white lash. Yeah, the white yeah. lash. Yeah. I kept thinking, you know, as I was sort of thinking about, I understand the the impulse to sort of sh shatter that that uh, establishment arrogance. I kept thinking about that scene that um, in in Daredevil season one. Where Wesley is talking to, um, oh God, what's the female lead? Uh, oh, not yes, Daredevil. But... Uh, <laughs> I don't know anybody. Not, I only not Daredevil. 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 Paralegal. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And she's like, "What? You know, why don't you just kill me or something?" And he gives the speech basically of you just you think you have nothing left to lose, but you just haven't thought it through. And I think that's kind of that's kind of my reaction to a lot of those stories about like uh, the anger and angst uh, across America, um, which is that things have been bad and they've been they, they they've been tough for a lot of people. But at the same time, do you really not think that it can get so much worse? <laughs> God. Oh. Uh. There was something around the 2012 election that I remember uh, being with a whole lot of uh, extreme leftist activists and, and, you know, folks way, way out kind of on the on the left who were pretty pissed off at Obama. And, and yes, there are reasons there. I, I, you know, 
I have my very ACLU-y reasons uh, to, to, you know, some aspects of the Obama administration, on, especially on national security. Well, those, those ACLU-y reasons are actually now even more reasons to damn Obama. I, I know. Like, I know. That you didn't <laughs> see this coming, buddy? <laughs> yeah. I and, and, like, let me be clear. I generally like a lot of Obama's policies. I, I like and I like the, you know, we're talking populism. I, I, I like the image of Obama. I like the sort of uh, the, you know, the, the sort of general classiness of Obama, especially looking at sort of what we were looking at now. And, and, and many of his policies and his administration's policies were good. Maybe they were quietly good in some ways. They weren't quite as splashy. I happy that the Affordable Care Act even is a thing, even though it's imperfect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not like me shitting on Obama, but there were people around me who were shitting on Obama. And I kind of had this moment where I said like, man, you know, I, you know, I'm not against Obama. I think he's done some good things, blah, blah, blah. But like thinking about George W. Bush, because at that point that was kind of our monster, right? That was the one, you know, we were all like, oh, gross. I sort of had this moment where I was like, why don't we get our cool you know like why don't we get our cool guy that we really like to rally behind like when are we ever going to get the liberal like actual leftist who, who's out there <laughs> like because because it seems like we've had the actual monster right wingers can we have the actual you know quote unquote monster left wingers too that would be cool uh and now i i think back to that statement and i'm like i really wish we could go back just a couple of weeks <laughs> um it's just but yeah. but we we got another like we got another middle of the road candidate like to an extent I I do kind of feel yeah. like one of the reasons we're kind of in this mess is that like the Democratic Party hasn't been an effective counterbalance. Um, yes. That yes. It, that's like, correct. It always compromised and steered to the middle, even as the middle kind of continued to be pushed to Go the right, right. Yeah. because at the extreme end. Uh, you had people who, you know, were going to kind of ride or die for, uh, you know, upper class tax cuts and massive defense spending and, you know, all and entire and, you know, cuts to social programs. Um, and meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, a lot of a lot of Democrats enjoyed punching left more than they liked punching right. Sure. Um, and so disappointing. And so then you look around and you wonder where did the 6 million people who showed up for Obama, where did they go? Yeah. Why did, why did the Bernie people never really rally behind uh, Hillary? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's kind of your answer. Institutionally, they were, they were discouraged. Yeah. And, it, and it's, this is where even thinking about politics makes me incredibly depressed and Part of why I, I did sort of have to leave <laughs> the world of sort of like, you know, full time spending all of my time sort of reading politics and looking at politics and doing political analysis and doing news analysis and stuff like that is because it actually crushed my soul uh, to, to look at a lot of this stuff. It actually like hurt me physically <laughs> to be like completely immersed in this because of I know it's a numbers game and I know it's a game. Uh, in a lot of people's minds, but man, the human cost of all of this is just too much. The people who whose rights get trampled, the people who get deported, the people who can't change their bodies, the people who can't um, 
<laughs> people who can't live. I mean, here I'm talking about certain rights and 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 the, the most pressing of all of this, of course, is, is going to be things like Black Lives Matter, is going to be things like people of color not being safe on the fucking streets or even in their own homes. Things like that, I, I, I can't separate. I'm just incapable of separating emotionally the sort of numbers and the sort of the hard data of this from the like just amount of suffering that happens. And I suppose that's why you actually are called a bleeding heart liberal, right? Like that's the actual bleeding heart part of it, right? Is you can't separate uh, your your emotional feelings and, and sympathy and empathy and care and desire to work hard to change things from things like, well, here's how people voted. Here are the charts. Here are the numbers. Here's the, here's the cold, hard facts. Um, and I, I will continue, I think, to be incapable of separating those things. And that's part of what obsessed me so much about, uh, about this election. And I will tell you, there are times, man, oh man, uh, where I miss being in that office, where I really miss being in the ACLU office, because I at least felt like I was part of a team that was doing a thing, uh, even if it wasn't always something exciting or always something as sexy as like we're fighting for your right to live or we're fighting for your you know for for something very very fundamental and very incredibly stirring and moving sometimes it was a guy with a sign that said something political on his stupid lawn you know it's not always exciting uh but i have been encouraged um and i will say this uh by how much we have been encouraged to think about ways where we can be mindful and thoughtful and and not apolitical uh, advice. It's actually been incredibly encouraging uh, when you hear higher ups say things like, no, fucking be mad and, you know, find the ways that are appropriate for you to do that uh, in your work. So that's pretty fucking cool. Well, it also those we, feelings of not being at the ACLU sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great to be in a, in a workplace that's, that's like that, especially in media. Uh, I think it is a sort that's of pastime rare. to, you know, give up on the notion that um, you can be apolitical. Yeah, uh, that the, the request to keep politics out of anything is is not itself an intensely political act. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad to hear that that will uh, be sort of something that informs uh, the, the work you do over at Vice, over at Waypoint. Um, yeah. But it has been... In the middle of all this news, um, fairly appropriate that some of the games that are out right now uh, <laughs> came out. It is a weird. There yeah. is there is a weird. Um, I'm not saying that there's like a lot of parallels uh, in a game like Dishonored Two, for instance, to the current situation. But boy, does a uh, game about abruptly finding yourself a complete political outsider <laughs> sure. uh, and having a uh, political power seized by really scary fringe interests led by <laughs> uh, a, a rather enigmatic and dark figure um, that hits home a little more that, 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 that punch lands uh, a little more effectively. And it's, it's made um, it's made dishonored perhaps less effective uh, as an escape, but perhaps more effective as uh, as a bit of therapy. I think it's uh, it's one of those games that it is about that very that is very much about um, you know political orders how they decay and uh, you know sort of what 
uh, what resistance and political and uh, and and political violence mean uh, in in situations like that. So it's been an interesting uh, time for for that game to land, uh, and I think it got both of us thinking about sort of how games tend to handle these themes. Because um, I don't think I don't like it's interesting for all the for all the games are like there's a lot of games that are sort of about like you're a rebel but it's very much in that like very 90s like 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 skating is not a crime man like (laughs) that's kind that's kind of how it feels uh and there's not a ton of games that sort of really like concrete concretely address that that idea that um occasionally a lawful order is overturned or the, the 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 levers of power are seized and then what does that mean when society continues to sort of function as normal but everything's gotten sort of twisted and horrible um and there, there's i think fewer games but perhaps more memorable games uh dealing with dealing with those sorts of situations yeah i so i cannot wait <laughs> to play uh, to actually play it because I have it on my PS4 right now and right you know I'm I'm running through several games for coverage and I'm enjoying all of them and it's exciting and fun but I I keep sort of peeking over you know at, at dishonored coverage being like oh man oh it looks good uh, uh. I, I'm kind of doing that so you played and enjoyed the first game uh how is this feeling to you sort of as a game as well as sort of the the you know narrative content i've I've heard certainly that the story is more interesting it is more layered there is sort of more going on uh which isn't to say that nothing was going on in the first dishonored but it was i i sort of always felt that the story of dishonored was less interesting than the world of dishonored and i've uh come to understand from people who have played the second one that the the actual characters come to life a little bit better and the actual sort of uh you know what am I trying to say here? The the narrative itself is actually more interesting this time around. That's interesting. Um, so with Dishonored two, I would say that it's Dishonored, but more so. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Like I had a fr- like I had a friend ta- <laughs> like asking me. Uh, he'd just gotten it and he was wondering if he should dive into Dishonored two or uh, start with Dishonored one. And actually, I I recommend it pretty strongly. Go back and play the first one because it's a more sp- it's a it's a sparser game. Okay. Um, there's less going on in it. Um, the, the levels aren't quite as, uh, ambitious in some ways. Uh, and I think overall it's a slightly more manageable game, uh, because it's a little stripped down. Like for instance, most of the time when you're in the city, uh, the places you're going are kind of under martial law. And, uh, so there's not a whole, there's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of life in the streets, right? Like the, the, the conceit is there's a plague and nobody's around. Uh, so it's just you and the guards. Dishonored 2 is kind of like, yeah, what if, uh, what if there were, there was life in the streets? What if there were low security areas and high security areas? Uh, what if the levels were just much, much bigger? Uh, and there was much more going on inside of all of them. And I think if you didn't have a grounding in how a game like this is supposed to work, it would be a little overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed at times. Um, but I think the world is still the star. Um, okay. and, and part of that is because like the world building is just utterly fantastic. Like I think every aspect of craft that's touched Dishonored 2, uh, is just masterwork level. Like I think the art is gorgeous. 
uh, whoever <laughs> whoever lights these games uh, <laughs> is is a genius. Whoever, because just the way things look, the way things are lit, the way the way objects catch the light, the way shadows are cast. Um, there are so many moments where I just want to like pause and stop, and just sort of stare at at what I'm looking at, because yeah. uh, it's it's that gorgeous. The the levels all feel architecturally consistent and sound like the the places you are would be real places like early on there's a sanitarium that you you visit it's an abandoned sanitarium um not in the uh mental illness sense but just in the like a just a retreat right that's sure, like sure. a just a just a a place for people to take the cure as it were and uh it is such a convincing space and like I have visited places like that and it feels utterly correct. It feels like you can navigate it. It all fits together in a way that makes sense. How the building is divided among floors all makes sense. And the game really pushes that. Like you have to develop that. Um, you don't have to, I mean, you could just go, you could just, you could just go ham and uh, just like murder your way through every level. Uh, but it's a game that really behooves you to sort of think um, vertically as well as laterally, right? Like yeah. that you have to know, you know, after you've gone down a flight of stairs and taken a couple lefts, you still have to know what is on the floor above you and to the right. You need yeah. to understand those relationships because otherwise you'll miss things uh, in, in this game. So all of that really hangs together. And then in the middle of all that exploration, there's so much good. There's so much good lore uh, sprinkled throughout, and it's not done in a heavy-handed way. Uh, there, there are so many great conversations you'll be o able to overhear, and I still think that stuff is a little bit stronger than than the story. I think sure the story maybe is is better than Dishonored. It's a little more clearly drawn, but overall, I think it's still. I think the Dishonored series is still about this sort of crumbling empire that's sort of lurching from one political crisis to the next. And like, hmm. yeah, it's about protecting the, the Caldwin line. Uh, it's about sort of uh, like stopping usurpers and traitors from, from enacting their, uh, their evil schemes. But, but really a lot of the, the game is driven by sort of peering behind the facade of society and looking at the, Looking at what's what's back there, right? Looking at the underbelly, yeah. and Dishonored Two is still very much a game about that, uh, and I think it's it's very effective in that, and that's kind of why I love it is that those constant like contrasts. Oh God, that's awesome. Okay, I can't. I still can't wait to play it. I I still even actually want to play Infinite Warfare, uh, the first <laughs> Call of Duty game I've been super interested in in a while. I'm still looking forward to actually playing. Uh, Watch Dogs 2, which apparently also is interesting and has some really legitimate political weight behind it. Yeah, especially in terms of race and sort of gentrification in San Francisco, which is like... I did not expect that from well, Watch Dogs. I, I heard it from Austin uh, when we were recording our, uh, our, our sort of twice-weekly podcast the other day. Uh, apparently the characters in this game are amazing and the, the sort of the world building, you know, it, it's definitely like a... I haven't played it yet, so it's just the pitch is that it's kind of Watch Dogs done much more interestingly with much more interesting characters and actual sort of uh, 
thoughtfulness sort of behind the narrative and thoughtfulness behind sort of the world uh, that you're in. A, a story that Austin told the other day was actually about how you, as Marcus, you're, you're a black dude, you're a hacker in San Francisco, and he lives in Oakland, and uh, you get sort of involved in this collective of hackers, and there's a scene where he and, like, his friend who works at Google, whatever the Google thing is called it's not actually google but it's clearly google and uh they're on a bus and like they're the the only two sort of like black people on the bus and they actually sort of are talking about it and it's like it done in a good and interesting way and actually sort of like wow okay cool nice i didn't expect this from this series that was like taking a shit on chicago in the last game and like with the dour aiden pierce that nobody liked but you know they're they're actually kind of doing some interesting things with it so there's actually a lot of really great games right now, which is what we need, I guess, <laughs> in some ways. And, you know, this is not me saying that Watch Dogs 2 was great, because I, I have not played it yet. But at least it seems like, hey, there's there's something to that. There's actually something to that. Um, briefly, I will mention, and I know it's funny, because with the last podcast, I was talking about advocating for a game and, and not wanting to go too overboard. But I, I am actually finding some resonance in uh, Even the Ocean, which actually came out uh, this week. Uh, and I talked about it last time, and I keep talking about it, uh, but I kind of keep finding things that I really like about this game. Uh, and it is, you know, a platformer with a lot of cool, just great design and, and some interesting twists. Uh, but the story is very much a story about finding your political power and organizing and sort of the power of the people versus the power of a, of a sort of ruling class. Uh, and it's done intelligently. It's done... Uh, you know, this is this is a, a game set in a fanciful world, a very colorful, you know, world. There's things like talking starfish and, and dreams that become tangible and all sorts of, you know, weird, fun kind of video gamey stuff. Uh, but it's the story content is very, very grounded and very well done. And there was I interviewed the developers uh, and one part that sort of stuck out to me that I thought was very interesting was uh, they wrote the main character to be someone who is. Uh, feels the sort of burdens of being a model minority and the, they're both uh, like East Asian folks who made this game um, and they and they kind of wanted to comment on that on like that aspect of racism where you know the the sort of like white piece of shit mayor will be like you're so great keep doing this uh, and there's like pressure for this person who is sort of being this model minority and doing the job and getting the job done and and maybe this isn't necessarily the best thing for everybody and sort of everybody in their in their class or in their their sort of social status, uh, and it's and it's done really well and really intelligently, and it's and it's always a joy for me when I when I play something that is both sort of fanciful and fun and wacky and all over the place, and you know a platformer, you know how I feel about those, uh, and also kind of has this like really intelligent and thoughtful story to it, and intelligent and thoughtfully drawn characters, uh, and it's it's actually kind of saying something that makes. It makes me happy, and it makes, like you said earlier, sort of it makes the punch land uh, a little harder, sort of now in our in our turbulent and horrifying times. <laughs> so, uh, we d do you want to talk more about political organizing in games, or should we should we move on? Well, I, I think point? maybe there's just one game we should touch on a little bit, and that is. Um, and I don't recommend seeking it out. I'm not sure it's it still runs uh, on most PCs anymore. Um, but did you ever play a force more powerful? No, I actually didn't. Uh, so I, I found out, uh, like last year or so that, um, it's actually designed by Ananda Gupta, uh, who oh, wow. made Twilight okay. Struggle. Uh, now he works at Riot. 
um, did a little bit of work on on XCOM 2. And uh, the thing about A Force More Powerful is that it, it was a strategy game about nonviolent resistance. Huh. Um, and it was a really crude game in some ways. Uh, they're very low, very no frills, but it was also a game about like the importance of just building coalitions and striking bargains with people whose agreement, whose visions did not align with your own, mm. um, and building successful and, and stable coalitions out of that. Uh, but then also sort of securing your. Uh, movement from outside interference, um, making sure that your movement was disciplined, uh, and and then starting to undercut the regime. Uh, so, like, you know, it was a game about you know you you might start out you're trying to overthrow a corrupt, uh, you know, a corrupt governor or something like that of a, you know, not like an unnamed like Eastern European country or state or something like sure. that. Um, and you might start out with like, you know, you're the head of the resistance, but you've got a few people who are true believers who just want this person gone, but then everyone else wants something very different. You know, you've got, you've got an auto plan, uh, whose members tend to be like a little bit right wing, but they're also not doing too well, but the regime is keeping things stable and they do like order. So... Huh, let's see, like, they're not sure, but then you also have the teachers who are uh, pretty left-wing, but also pretty committed to the state and, and stuff like that. And and then, of course, you have, you have like, the actual, honest to God, like, um, you know, anarchist hacker coalition or something like that, who are yeah. completely off their fucking rocker, but have some really useful skills that they can bring to your movement and are kind of down to rebel over whatever. Uh, but they also <laughs> will try to radicalize you. They want to pull you, pull you to the, ex the extremes. Uh, and so you start like deciding who's going to be the foundation of your coalition. And then you start doing things like sending your most charismatic members to do things like talk to the uh, captain of the local police precinct and just, just talk to him. Just, just get his, just talk about how he's feeling about how things are going and stuff like that. But if you go too fast, you can cause things to just completely collapse and plunge into chaos. And that's not a win state because then, yeah, you got rid of the enemy, but your policy objectives are unmet. They might be unmeetable now because you don't know what's going to happen in the chaos. Um, so it was really interesting to, it was a really interesting game because like, <laughs> it was designed as a teaching tool and a training tool uh, as part of a... Uh, democracy spreading initiative of the late 90s early 2000s yeah. um and it was like like funded uh by uh sort of by a you know pro-democracy coalition um the interesting thing was in some ways it was a very optimistic game because it was like you just put your shoulder to the wheel and you can start building these movements and it's a little bit at a time but you can slowly like watch like and it was really cool. Like, it would start out really slow. Like, you had no capacity to do anything. You had no money. You had no staff. You had no... Uh, you, you couldn't do direct action because it would be completely ineffective or it would devolve into, like, breaking windows and stomping on cars. And then you lose, the, you lose popular support. Um, but then, like, it got pretty cool. Like, as you built a movement where, like, 
police would simply stop arresting your supporters because they no longer wanted to, right? Like you could suddenly like throw rallies and just shut down um, parts of the city and stuff like that. Like you'd have people who, you know, sort of spurned you before come to you and be like, yeah, it seems like maybe it's time to, to join this movement. And in some ways it was really optimistic. Um, in other ways, it was also very much a game about like, how easy it is for authoritarians to just crush these things if they really want to. Yeah. Uh, and that was the, like, that was the, that was the trick was like sort of <coughs> not moving too fast, um, undercutting the institutions they depend on, um, before you really started making your moves. But it was, it was interesting because the game like taught you that those were smart tactics and everything. But then a lot of times it also felt a bit like, at any moment, like, really, the police might just round up all your people. And that, that was kind of the game, right? Like, it was like, okay, yeah. I, guess, I, guess we're, I guess we're hosed now. Um, or uh, you'd be like, all right, let's kick off our, our mass protests. Uh, and then it turned into just a complete, a complete breakdown into chaos and disorder. Um, the government would collapse and you'd, you'd still lose. Uh, so it was also a game that was very much about, like, it taught really ambivalent lessons about nonviolent resistance. Cause there were a lot of times where it was like, Oh man, this is really ineffective. Like at this point we've got the entire like city or country on our side, but like we can still be crushed any moment. So like, what's the, what's the game plan here? Uh, it was a really interesting game though. Um, and it's probably the most, probably still the most serious treatment of like resistance to, uh, lawful but perhaps illegitimate authority uh, that I've ever seen. Oh man, that's you know I need to play this now somehow. I'm gonna have to, have to find some some workaround, some ridiculous, amazing thing. I uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. That sounds great. I know uh, there have been some good games in the last couple of years that have sort of commented on oppression, quite a few. Um, but yeah, when it comes to like actual like fight the power <laughs> that sounds what's that sounds good what's like yeah. the legit worst most patronizing game about fighting the man uh that you oh, can think Christ. of mark echoes get up i don't know like <laughs> like that was a game about graffiti that was like fight the power but it was like a corporate you know it was, it was mark echoes like brand um i didn't actually play it though so maybe i can't yeah say it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just know that was the premise of that game. And like, that's funny because it's like, here's a branded product that says fight the power. <laughs> I oh, don't yeah. know. Just maybe just to me. I don't know. It's a little weird, but, um, that I've really played like, God, I've played so many, I've played so many well-meaning things that are ham handed, uh, in my life. I've played and watched so many well-meaning things <laughs> that are ham handed in my life. Uh, so I'm having trouble really sort of pinpointing one other than graffiti for your brand. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not real good. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think like I had one a minute ago. Um, I mean, I can oh, take man. a dump on Harvester, which was like, supposedly was like, well, the world is so crazy. It makes you go crazy. And that's why there was all the racism, but no. <laughs> No, you you were just racist. It's just wrong and bad and shitty. 
Uh, Mirror's Edge I found pretty contemptibly um, anti-authoritarian. Because I'm also going with the first game. I don't know what the second game is about. But, like, the first game is literally just, like, like, they said giving them power would make things better. But it didn't. (laughs) Whoa. And then it was, like, companies rule this entire society. And they keep trying to shut down our parkour. And I really like, like Faith's character design, though. That's good. But yeah, yeah the character wrong. design's alright, but like, damn, yeah, it's wrong. like, <laughs> it's it's such a like what like no, but really, what are we protesting here? Like, it's just it's such a lame, poorly drawn like. So many games that tackle this theme don't want to like offend anyone or like actually like say anything by accident. So you just get these like really vague, awful statements about like corporations and control and liberty, and it's like, yeah, that's not really connect. Like, unless you actually connect those themes to like something real-ish, uh, they're just kind of dead words. Yeah, for sure. God, I'm I'm really racking my brain for for good examples but i think stuff like that because it's so it's in it's in so many fucking video games it's been in video games ever since games have decided they they wanted to pretend to be uh like aware of the world on any level but it feels like so much of that just sort of washes over like it's like the fabric of a video game as video game is to say this corporations are bad man and they're made by uh, corporations it's it's yeah there's there's cynicism there that is just sort of distasteful and tiring, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. For sure. Well, on that note of <laughs> staying away from crappy games that have done things politically poorly, let's go into our mailbag, but after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, Danielle. You look a little down. What's wrong? Well, Rob, I guess a few things. My country was issued the easiest remedial civics exam in history and managed to fail it, and now we've elected a nakedly opportunistic scam artist for president. Well, that does sound pretty upsetting, but I think... And of course the people he's surrounding himself with are even worse. It's a rogues gallery of authoritarians and white supremacists, and the only reason it's not already worse is because the guy we elected is too disorganized to fill a bathroom cabinet, much less the president's. Yeah, that's pretty troubling. And it's not, let's not even dig into the fact that it's entirely possible that Russian intelligence worked overtime to help this guy's campaign. Because I'm sure that shouldn't trouble anyone. Danielle, you know what could help you feel better? What's that? A warm pair of comfortable, high-quality Bombas socks. Rob. Check out these fall morals from Bombas. Go on, touch them. Touch them. Feel their soft, reinforced footbed and extra long, stable cotton. Doesn't that just make you want to go to getbombas.com slash weekend and order a pair? Or 10? They have discounts on these babies right now. And rest assured that for every pair of socks you buy, Bombas will donate a pair to a homeless shelter. The next four years might be pretty tough, Danielle, but if you go to getbombas.com slash weekend, I can promise that you'll get 20% off your next order. And while Hillary Clinton lost the electoral vote, your feet will feel like Barack Obama just won his third term. 
Holy shit, I'm buying a hundred of these things. I'm on my way to getbombas.com slash weekend. Four more years. Oh, that was a good ad. All right, we're in our mailbag segment now. And our first email is a is a very, very good story. Oh, and it don't read this James. first line. Okay, don't worry. Uh, I've been through a backlog of old episodes that I've missed here and there, so excuse me if this is an exceptionally late response to an old request for stories about our experiences with games. So yeah, let's talk about Life is Strange again. This is the story of how it became one of the pivotal moments in my life. My best friend is named Catherine. We met in freshman year of college at a literary mag, mag uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a literary mag meeting. We talked about everything. Any secrets I had were for her ears only. A lot of people criticize the two kisses in Life is Strange, but love is complicated. At one point, Catherine and I started dating. When your best friend feels like your other half, platonic love and romantic love kind of mush together. Dating didn't work out, but those mixed up feelings never went away. Life is Strange is the only piece of media that has made me feel like that gray area existed for someone else without devolving into a rom-com. My friend Julian shares my love for Life is Strange. We disagree on the value of the choice at the end. Life is Strange is a game about letting go of Chloe, as in accepting that she's dead. Julian doesn't see why there's even a choice to save Chloe. I agree with him that it's the wrong choice. The entire game sets you up to be able to let go. Life is Strange reminds me of Nietzsche's concept of memory. It's a space for you to return to, to imagine how things could have gone, and to repeat things you understand uh, from what to take from the experience. The story in the game gives Max the time to say goodbye and to imagine what could have been had she not abandoned Chloe years ago. She figures out who she is and what being a good person means. To choose Chloe after all you say, uh, sorry, to choose Chloe after all that is to say you're not ready that you haven't learned yet. In January 2015, Catherine took a lot of pills at once. I visited a, psychiatri a psychiatrist twice a week until summer came. I played Life is Strange during finals week, December 2015. I must have played it in three days, during which I didn't really leave my room. I came to the final choice, and I chose Chloe. If I couldn't save Catherine, I was going to save Chloe for Max. I realized what I was doing by not letting her go. I fell into a bad spell of depression and ended up going back to see my psychiatrist. I don't blame the game for sending me into depression again. I'm grateful. It started another stage of healing, and I got better. I'm still not the same person I was before January 2015, and I never will be. But change is something that we all accept by living. Acceptance seems impossible sometimes, but Life is Strange reminded me that we all have Max's power. We can keep trying until a breakthrough. James. Thank you, James. I think that's all I'm going to say is just thank you for sharing that. Uh, that is... That's... Very, very heartfelt, and I'm I'm getting a little overclumped just sort of thinking about it and and thinking about what you went through and and what that meant to you. So thank you. Yeah, that's that is an incredibly powerful uh, experience, and uh, I I do want to thank James for for sh for sharing that story. Um, I also want to thank James for sharing it without any uh, spoiler warnings. Uh, thanks a lot, James. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess I, I just crossed life is strange right off that, that list. For a second. I thought about that for a second, and I was just like, "No, I gotta, I gotta power through this." Story. Oh my it's god, I had this. I felt so yeah. horrible when, I, when, I, when this kid hit the inbox. I was like, "It was a really moving." I was like, "This is a great letter. This is this is really incredible." And then I was like, "Oh shit, though, I really wish I didn't know this, but life is strange." God damn it, right James. Now. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, really, like, couldn't <laughs> couldn't we have waited to share the story for two more years? Let's yeah, say right? until I could <laughs> until I could make time uh, to play Life is Strange. I still uh, think it's worth it. I still think it's worth that experience to have. Uh, yeah, well, with, I think with the game, clearly, I'm that, not that saying is, with, with James's experience. I'm saying with the game, it is worth going through. The, the fact that you can even talk about a game bringing out these themes and like dealing with your feelings of regret and responsibility for a loss and 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 someone else's experiences in life. Um, God, there's so few games that you that even like can even start that conversation. There's just yeah. there's 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 so little that deals in the space so that that someone can have this experience with it and that can resonate uh so uh so completely is is really incredibly and incredible and, and moving stuff. Uh yeah. so so thank you, James. Alright, so uh our next letter comes from uh Gint Romanovskis. Hi DNR. As someone for, coming from a smaller country, woo Latvia. <laughs> I always perk up when my neck of the woods gets mentioned in globally popular media. While references are common enough in books and occasionally even on TV, I don't think I've seen Latvia mentioned in games except in the context of larger European conflicts. I would, of course, love for my country or our Baltic neighbors to be used as the setting for more games. That said, what areas or cultures would you like to see explored more in games? Conversely, do you get a similar boost from encountering any particular places in media. Oh, do I ever. I I, I think I get the same uh, feeling that Gint here feels about Latvia, about my weird homeland of Rhode Island. Uh, whenever anything Rhode Island, it, remotely Rhode Island, is sort of in media, because it's not it's not super common, I, I get very excited. I think about whether the accent is properly portrayed, which it very rarely is. It's a it's a very specific, you know, blend of a Boston with a little bit of New York nasaliness. Anyway, um, I actually like, you know, before before I was a little bit more politically aware, I used to get really excited about the fact that uh, Family Guy was set in Rhode Island and there were all these Rhode Island references throughout sort of the show. Um, there's a eternal darkness for one of the characters starts out in a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island. It's very exciting. It's rare. Like, let's be real. It's rare that like my home state is like in a video game or in like a major thing. Uh, but I do get excited. And I and I have I have the same feeling about places I've lived for sure. Like I really want to play Watch Dogs 2 partially just to run around in San Francisco. Uh, you know, I actually had when I was at Zam, my sort of video freelancer did a special video for me on sort of one of my favorite running routes. He would kind of go on the favorite running routes and like, you know, show me the video and I get all excited, things like that. Uh, you know, things said in Boston, I, I was excited about sort of the weird things in Boston and Fallout 4, stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I totally I get very, I get very excited because, you know, you have a personal relationship with the place if you've lived there for a long time or if you've especially if you've come from that place. That's why, you know. Rhode Island pride comes out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I love, like, I was utterly lost to uh, the secret world when it opens on Solomon Island, uh, which is pretty nakedly a uh, Maine or North Shore fishing yeah. uh, fishing community. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was utterly captivated uh, by that. And having, like, stuff that I recognized as, like, locally inspired 
um, really, really resonated with me. Um, I have the same feeling about about Alan Wake to an extent because so much of that landscape reminds me of like Western Mass. Uh, sure. Even though it's even though it's Pacific Northwest, they're they're kind of similar climates. Um, a setting I would love to see uh, used more often, just like sort of my my wish list for like uh, for for more media covering something like this is um, I've always thought Northern Ireland is just a fascinating, yeah. uh, fascinating place with a fascinating history, um, and in particular like. Northern, like post-war Northern Ireland, uh, through like from the Troubles to like present day, uh, really, um, you know, in in part because like it was, God, I don't want to romanticize like someone else's like nightmare or anything like that, but sure, sure, there is a fascination that you could have. A sort of low to medium intensity, like secular civil war, burning for like twenty years, um, in the heart of the Western world. Yeah, that we tend to view these things as like other, right? That these are places yeah. that, that, that this shit happens. This is like happening in the middle, very East. far away. Yeah, yeah exactly, for exactly. Sure. And like, and there's a lot of things like that happening uh, in areas like that. So you can you tend you can sort of distance yourself from it. Um, Northern Ireland is weird because, like, literally, it was a ferry ride away from, like, you know, from the UK, right? Like from from right. from Scotland, where like you could you could hop on a plane and like, you know, thirty minutes thirty minutes later, be in like complete normalcy, complete like Western capitalist, safe, secure, um, like normality. Yeah. And then you get back on a plane and you're in this. Um, really like torn up war zone uh where somehow life is managing to go on too that's that's the other thing right is that part of the othering process is you imagine that things like this it's just all civil war all the time it's all it's nothing but like wall-to-wall like car bombings and like um you know mass shootings and stuff like that and the truth is like no people adapt to people like you adapt to living in a reality where like, okay, this could just be, this could just be something that happens to you and you have to still go to the store. You have to still, you know, go have a drink at a bar with your friends. You still go out, you still go to clubs with this sort of hanging over your head. Um, and so I've always just found that, that, that stuff fascinating. Cause like it is such a, in some ways it is so easy to identify uh, with many of the people in, in that situation. And in some ways it is such a bizarre and disorienting thing uh, to think about. And so that's, that's kind of my fascination uh, with that topic. Um, you know, it's sort of the, and there's a lot of historical interest too, right? In some ways it's sort of the, it was the last, it was the last frontier of the, of the British empire, right? It was the, the last colony that, that Britain couldn't quite divest itself of and, and didn't know how. Um, so I just, there, there's so many themes there that, that I find utterly fascinating and, uh, and yet no media, hardly any media, uh, ever, ever touches it. And, and certainly not in a way that tries to get at that, that daily reality, right? Like a lot of the media that does tend to touch on, it tends to be something like 
Patriot Games or something like that, sure, where it's like, sure. where like Sean Bean's a super terrorist. Yeah. Uh, and let's all listen to sad Irish music as we as we contemplate, um, you know, like yeah. like why these Sunday terrorists are Sunday. kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I find that stuff fascinating. Yeah. Um, can I can I read the next letter? I really want to. Yes, read the next you can. Letter. I I knew that this is definitely a Rob a Rob letter. So I think yes, you should all right. Read this one. Uh, our last email comes from Joe. I wanted to tell you about my very first few minutes playing Stalker and how the game actually managed to embarrass me. <laughs> so you start at Call of Pripyat as a military investigator of sorts who is airdropped into the game and tasked with finding out what happened to MacGuffin. Uh, some crashed helicopters, if I recall correctly. Uh, anyway, alone in the sagebrush and fresh off the heels of some other military-style shooters, I promptly whip out my trusty assault rifle and start hoofing it towards the structures I see in the distance, eyes peeled for trouble. Not five minutes into my trek, I see two dudes poking around a bush. They're armed, but their guns are slung around their shoulders, and they're clearly interested in something other than me. As soon as I, as soon as I realized they were not going to attack me, I approached, ready for my first NPC interaction. <laughs> However, the mood shifted abruptly as I got close. Whoa, 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 that's, that's close enough, buddy, one of the guys said as they draw their weapons and point them at me. I took a step back, wondering what I did wrong, but the two guys didn't stand down. Put your gun down, man, the other guy said, a little more helpfully. Suddenly I realized that my gun was drawn and trained on them, and they were reacting quite appropriately. <laughs> Realizing that the situation would continue to escalate to an inevitable firefight I, if I didn't draw down, I, in a semi-panic started tapping all the usual holster weapon buttons at, on my keyboard. After my fourth or fifth keystroke, my gun lowered and the two men immediately drew down. With relief all around, we had a boilerplate NPC discussion, and then I went on my way, leaving the two stalkers to their stalking. Except, when I tried to draw my rifle again, I didn't have it. All I had in my inventory was a pistol. A quick check of the controls confirmed that in my brief NPC encounter, I hadn't holstered my gun. Oh no. In my panic to not get shot in the face, I had dropped my gun. <laughs> I backtracked and scoured the ground, looking for my assault rifle, but it was no use. The brush was too dense, the area too wide. After a few minutes of searching, it was obvious that it was gone. Luckily, the two NPCs were still hanging around. I imagined them sitting, sitting on a fallen log, taking a smoke break in the crisp Ukrainian afternoon, watching me with mild amusement as I searched in vain for my rifle. Not sure what to do without a primary firearm, I approached the men again, and being unarmed, they were more than happy to chat. One even sold me one of his extra rifles, although he took nearly every ruple I had for it. <laughs> so rearmed, I left the men again, and headed off towards my goal. It wasn't until much later, when the men had faded into the mists of Pripyat, Pripyat that I realized what had actually happened. You see, I couldn't find my gun on that dusty, cracked soil because it simply wasn't there. <laughs> One of those wily NPCs had picked up my gun before I realized I had <laughs> dropped it and had been more than happy to sell it back to me, suckering me for almost <laughs> all of my cash. <laughs> oh. God, I love Stalker. Oh, God. That's now I'm amazing. see I'm not sure like I'm that that story amazes me I really hope it's true I can't remember off the top of my head 
if I ever saw NPCs exhibiting like weapon gathering behavior. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me because the, the behaviors in that game are pretty complex. Uh, so I imagine they, they probably do stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but part of me is amazed that like the minute that, that you turn your back, they're just like yoink and walk it's off with, with your gear. Yeah, that's really impressive. I'm impressed by the AI and I know I don't know much about Stalker. I just know the stories that you've told me. I only know like stalker stories. I don't really know much about the sort of the day to day uh, of the game, uh, but you know maybe it's better this way. Well, that's, I mean that's I amazing it, <laughs> vision. It's not it. like you should. Everyone should play stalker. Okay. Like all right, stalker is right. incredibly important, but a lot of people just haven't played it. And I, I think though the thing that really makes it is like when you realize the world. Exit, like operates according to all these rules and stuff like this will happen and you change your behavior because it's no longer quite video game logic in a lot of stalker a lot of it's like just how does this crazy like uh demon <laughs> like <laughs> this crazy like uh almost like thunderdome type type place how does it how does it work what are the what are the rules governing it and how do i stay alive here um but yeah, the stories like this are just, it's its so on the nose about why I love Stalker. Well, I suppose we should stalk our way right into our <laughs> our weekend projects. Rob, are you watching, playing, listening to anything extra special right now? Uh, you're going to have to come back to me, I think. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I am, but right now I've, I've just spent the week scrolling through my Twitter feed uh, in, in mounting <laughs> yeah. horror. Yeah, that's that's more than fair. I um I want to endorse the the NES classic, but I feel like it's not right to do so just yet. Maybe maybe on the next production uh cycle or whatever, maybe when more people can kind of get their hands on them. Um or I suppose you could just make your own NES classic by uh buying all these games on virtual console, but you know, maybe we'll talk about that next time perhaps. Uh one thing I am going to endorse but with a caveat. Uh, I saw Doctor Strange last week. It was a uh, it was a a rare night when I just sort of my girlfriend was like, "Hey, want to watch a movie?" And I got out of work at a at a you know pretty reasonable time, and we have a nice little movie theater in Williamsburg, and we just went for it, and we saw it in 3D and all that shit. So I really I really liked this movie. It might be at the top of the Marvel pile for me, which that's not the highest bar. I'll be honest. I, I sort of enjoy the Marvel movies, but I don't get super excited about them. They are very much, um, like, oh yeah, all right, I'll go see that. That'll be a fun couple hours of my life. And I'll groan at the, the stupid jokes and the bad dialogue. And I'll kind of look and wonder at the abs on display and, and the, you know, fantastical things as well. Um, but I think this was probably the Marvel movie that is the most visually imaginative and completely off the walls, uh, which I really, really enjoyed about it. So it's about, you know, Doctor Strange is this badass surgeon who is a cocky asshole, you know, the type he, he only wants to operate on really, you know, weird and wacky cases. He gets in a horrible accident, breaks all his hands, 
and uh, you know all the bones in his hands, basically. Not that he has more than one hand, uh, more than two hands, um, and you know starts going through all of his money, trying to heal himself and go back to the way things were, and goes down a route of mysticism and becomes a fucking wizard. Uh, this is the first, you know, this is the plot of the movie. I'm not spoiling anything. That's the fucking, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some issues with the movie. There was definitely some sort of whitewashing about the casting, uh, for sure, uh, that I know a lot of folks were, were kind of talking about. And some of the dialogue is like utter dog shit. Like, like some of the writing in this movie is so bad, even for Marvel movies, which are not like, I don't think anybody goes to Marvel movies for like really transcendent writing that works on multiple levels. Um, I think maybe some of the, the, you know, winter soldiers, maybe a high point for that. I think some of the writing in the first Thor is actually very funny rom-coms type stuff. So they're not always bad, but, but man alive, there's some dumb fucking dialogue in this movie. Um, there's is there anything scene... particularly vile? Stand yes. Out? Yes, absolutely. So Ben Bratt, is randomly in this movie as a guy who is um, mis- miraculously healed. And uh, Doctor Strange, this is sort of pre-transformation into being a fucking wizard, uh, finds this guy. He lives in New York, and you know, he's New York-based. And he finds this guy playing basketball. He had a he had a, like a C, uh, God, I, I forget what, but cervical spine injury. He should be a quadriplegic. He should be barely alive, but he's out playing basketball. And he, and he finds a guy, he's like, I don't, you know, I'm trying to, he, you know, I, how did you, how did you do this? And, and, you know, there's a whole bit of dialogue about how Dr. Strange wouldn't operate on him. He even went to the place and all this other shit. And then he starts going on. He's like, so I went and I hung out with the yogis in, in, the, in you know, in the Himalayas. And I, and I found the mystical teachings of X, Y, and Z. And I was sitting there like, <laughs> yeah, it's a joke, right? It's a joke, like. It's just the most dog shit, like, 70s spiritualism, mysticism, like, like, from a, from a shitty comic book. Like, just, not a good comic book, but, like, just a shitty, like, let's go see the mystics and the yogis and the blah, blah, blah. And and it's not a joke. That's what he did. And even if that's what he did, that's fine. But don't say it like that. Don't just say, like. I traveled to the mountains and I found the yogis. Like that's so fucking. Oh god, it was bad. Yeah. Bad. Oh, yeah. Don't don't bad. be your like unfortunate like hippie parent or something like that who's like oh, I went to the east, man. They've that's got exactly. it all figured out over there. We only exactly. treat the symptoms, but they treat the whole body. Literally almost yeah. word for word. Yeah. So like the some of the dialogue is fucking dog shit. I I actually really like the characters. There's Doctor Strange, and there's a, a doctor that he's sort of involved with who's his, like, I don't know, sort of on-again, off-again girlfriend. And it's a really thankless role, but, but um, God, now I'm blanking on the actress's name, and I'm actually going to look it up. Don't worry, this won't take long. Doctor Strange, <laughs> Wikipedia. I really do want to kind of give her uh, props because she does a lot with a very thankless role and, and is actually very funny and very warm in this role. Uh, no, I want Doctor Strange in the movie. Sorry, I'm going to have to make a quick note because I really do want to give her props. Well, whoever she is, she stood out in a pretty paint-by-numbers role. Yeah, very, very. Oh, God, there's a 70s version of this movie. I didn't know this. This is well, interesting. N- n- is it, wait, is it a Marvel Doctor Strange from the 70s? I, or like, it is, is it? yeah, based on Marvel okay. character, oh, Marvel shit. Comics fiction okay. character of the same name. 
Uh, yeah, this looks real interesting. Okay. Uh, yep. Wait, Jessica Walters was in this movie? Whoa. Holy. I think we got a project. Uh, yep. Jessica Walters was in the original Doctor Strange 1978 movie. It's one of the principal uh, starring performers. Okay, maybe we're not cutting this because this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to have a really regrettable sleepover. Um, we really do. We sure as shit do. Okay. Please tell me who is in this friggin' movie. Well, obviously it's Benedict uh, Cumberbatch in the sort of... Okay, it's Rachel McAdams who, who I'm thinking of. Rachel McAdams uh, as the uh, doctor... Uh, as another doctor. She's a, she's a doctor that works with him. Uh, she's awesome and smart and warm and very, very funny. And she's in a lot of the sort of... Action, the humor that lands in this movie is all slapstick. And she is a huge part of that. So... Rachel McAdams gets massive, massive props uh, from me for for making it work, even when the writing is just bad. Also getting massive props from me in this movie is Mads Mikkelsen. Am I saying that incorrectly? Yeah, you got it. Did I get it? Okay. He is a glam rock lizard looking bad guy dude uh who like rivaling for me one of my favorite performances in the last couple of years of like incredibly talented respected actors as dumb fucking bad guys in goofy movies uh rivaling um eddie redmayne in my my personal favorite jupiter ascending as wow. evil bad man in a cape um as just this like fucking wizard who is evil and has like glam rock lizard makeup on for some reason. He's not a lizard. He's not a lizard at all. Like at whatsoever. Th- this at is any key. Point. He is in no way a lizard. He, man. he is in no way a lizard. He is choosing to present himself as a lizard, dude, lizard like dude. Well, it happens when he starts going to the dark side or wherever the fuck they call it in this movie. Cause there's, you know, there's evil of course. In the and then he's just the like, mysticism in the shit. And then he's like, Cardassians, become... that's a good look. I yeah, should, exactly. I should channel that. Exactly. So he kind of gets this weird, like, literally glitter lizard eyes. Oh, fuck yeah. It's God amazing, damn. and I love it. And that that's the sort of shit. This movie is so trippy and weird and actually very visually incredibly beautiful and trippy. Uh, so I do recommend it, even though some of the dialogue is, like, eh, not maybe not the best. But, um, yes, that's a long way uh, of me saying this is, is a, a little bit crappy, but also awesome. And definitely worth your time if you're in the mood for a completely wacky, trippy, sort of escapist movie. All right, so, so, so Rob, what's coming back to you? I think we've touched briefly on pitch, but have I truly explained just how lost no. to the show I am? No, oh my God, and I'm so, I'm excited because I'm excited for this show. Yeah, um, you should be excited for this show, Danielle, because uh, what if all the good sports movies were turned into a weekly drama on TV made with like a million dollar an episode budget. Yes, please. (laughs) Uh, That's kind of how it feels, uh, really. Um, A a, a female pitcher has finally made it to the major leagues as a starting pitcher uh, for the San Diego Padres. And uh, her name's Ginny Baker. And one of the things that the very first episode even lays out is... This isn't going to be like rookie of the year or anything like that, mm. <laughs> uh, where you've got someone who's magically just got this like blessed arm 
that yeah. like is it, it's not gonna be like the natural where like every swing of the bat results in a home run, uh, which which really like once you notice it, once you realize that that's how the natural works, almost ruins the natural, which is it a beautiful does. baseball yeah. movie. But like, yeah, come on, like no, the guy has to hit like a double from time to time. Um, but anyway, so it just it, she what she has is an amazing trick pitch, um, and. Just an ability to sort of outwit batters, uh, but she doesn't have like she does not have a, a high fastball. Uh, she's not a great she's not a great hitter. Um, so that one of the things that she has to sort of confront is the fact that like she has to deal with a lot of static about like how she's physically incapable of playing the game at the pro level and all that stuff. Um, and that drives some interesting like she's not entirely secure. Like she's confident, but at the same time, like this is a character you see struggling with like doubt. Right. And like struggling against her limitations. Uh, but also sort of growing into this role as like, not just a trailblazer, but also like a media sensation, a star, uh, that has different powers and responsibilities than many of her teammates who are just baseball players, good ones, but they're just ball players. And so what it it's got like it checks all the boxes. Like, let's see. Her catcher is an aging all-time great, uh, who's pretty salty, but he has a heart of goddamn gold. Yes. And and Danielle, Danielle. Yes. His knees are giving out. Oh no. He's not gonna be able to play ball much longer. Oh. And here's the thing: he's realizing at the end of his career. That he's given everything to this game. And all he's got to show for it is a failed marriage. And a bunch of stats in a record book. And he has nothing that he really wants. And no one. He's got to give his wisdom to this young rookie. Oh, does he ever? There's so much wisdom. He has to have her back and like teach her how to be a star like him. Um, There's her completely like, you know... um, Shark in a suit agent, uh, who is uh, a a powerful woman who's made her way in male dominated industries and is not taking any shit. Her principles might be a little compromised, but the principle she doesn't compromise is she gives a hundred and ten percent to her client, and she believes in Jenny. Yeah. Um. And then every week, every week, okay, this is the worst part of the show. Every week there's a flashback that explains okay. some fresh trauma. That was visited on Ginny, occasionally even no. on even on the catcher, uh, that informs what they're struggling with this week on the show. Um, and the the other problem is they've started layering the tragedies together like a Russian nesting doll. Like in the first oh, episode, at the end of the first episode, you realize her dad, who's been throughout the entire first episode, is like a presence in her life. Her dad's a ghost. Uh, oh you, don't, you don't see him again for the rest of the series. <laughs> he's just he's just a vision she carries with her. Uh, he died in a car wreck uh, from a head-on collision the night they were driving home from a game where she was picked up by the uh, Padres organization. Oh, my God. But it gets better. It gets better. <laughs> in, like, the seventh episode, 
you discover the person driving the car that killed her dad was her best friend's dad who was drunk but he's trying to get to the game because Ginny Ginny and her dad guilted him into being there for his son so he felt really shitty while drunk and decided I'm going to be there for my boy and kill Ginny's dad this is like a 7th heaven episode (laughs) holy shit but at the same time like but the problem here's here's the crazy thing though, it's all just done really well. Is it, like it's corn, it's total corn. Yeah. But it's like delivered really well. Like there's, uh, in an early episode, corn. yeah, her manager <laughs> ha- keeps putting his foot in his mouth with regard to her gender. Yeah. Uh, he made some sexist comments in the past, and when he tries to clean them up. Uh, he he tells a really bad joke to get people off his back, and he's just getting castigated in the media. Oh no! Yeah. Um, but he has this this scene with Jenny as he just tries to explain that, like, for a guy like him, um, you know, thirty forty years older than than she is, like, the world has completely changed, and he doesn't really understand it. And he's trying; he wants to do the right thing. He knows he's yeah. botching it. But he doesn't understand how he's supposed to act. And he's just trying to do his job and try to do right by her. And it's like, it's a really like by the number scene again. But like it's two, it's two pros carrying it off yeah. uh, as, as, they, as they go through this. Um, and the show just has a terrific sense of humor. And there's a lot of like great, you know, clubhouse relationships. Is, you know, it starts to dig into the fact that like, Sports teams are these weird fraternities and, and families uh, in some ways, except that at any moment, like somebody could just be gone because they're traded. They're no longer necessary. And it makes everyone a little weird uh, living with that insecurity. Um, and so, like, at first I watched it because I was curious and everything, but like now I'm like, I need my episode of Pitch. Like, I need, like, I need it. Because, uh, because that's, because it is just, it's like one week it's Major League. The next week it's Bull Durham. The week after that it's for the love of the game. And the week after that it's Bang the Drum. Well, okay. It hasn't done Bang the Drum slowly yet because that's 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 tougher. But it's, it, it's that kind and of sports And it's always movie, a league of their week. own no matter what. It's always got a little of that. It has to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ginny, uh, it, it is very league of their own. Um, who was the lead in, in, in League of Davis. Their Own? Ginny Davis. Yeah. Yeah. She's very Gina Davis-like. Uh, in some ways, although Queen of Diamonds, went, pardon, I love that movie so much. She's her nickname in the movie is the Queen of Diamonds. So they that's what they call her in the newspapers. And yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, but she, but at the same time, she is way less. Um, I mean, maybe like gritty than Davis's okay. character in some ways. Sure. Like there's yeah. there's a really great episode uh, where she just has a mental health crisis because like oh. the pressure mounts and mounts and mounts, and she has no outlet, and she feels she has to be perfect and can't make a mistake. And it leads to a really well-earned meltdown uh, after, like, eight episodes where it's like, yeah, this is about the point where I start to crack. Yep. Um, and it, it touches on stuff like that. So it is uh, – it's just a blast. I goddamn love it. I – you have successfully pitched me on pitch not only because I obviously – I love baseball. I love cheesy shit that's good. Good cheesy you know, I love good cheesy shit. Love baseball. I love women in sports movies. And I have always had, uh, of course, 
harbored many fantasies about being like a first female professional athlete in in any in any fucking sport. I mean, I I've even thought about being the first female baseball player. I I never played baseball. I played softball. But whatever. This sounds like I really really need to watch this show and oh my god, we're probably going to get like um, you know, you know I'm watching Yuri on Ice right now and, and you know the internet is very excited about it and and oh my god, what happened in this episode? I feel like I'm going to be that way with this, with you, and I'll be like yeah. texting you like, Rob, oh my God, did you see that? Did you see the way that that, yeah. whatever, you know, whatever oh, happened, God. I and, will get And her old so catcher intense. is totally a hipster idol too. Oh, like good. the dude, like the dude has one of those beards that like you, the, yeah. one of those beards that like you just know, he knows like 25 different variations on the Manhattan yep. and the trendy <laughs> neighborhoods they're named after. Like, Oh, good. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm already in love with it. I haven't even I've never seen any of it and I'm in love with it. So yeah. I I need to watch this. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, it'll it'll make you feel better. Oh good, good. That's something we all need. I like that a lot. Oh my god. On that very happy and positive note, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And please, if you have a moment, please do tell your friends, tell your roommates, tell your frenemies, tell your Overwatch slash fic uh, group all about the show. Uh, if you have a moment to rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us, that means the world to us. That is how we how we get the the good word of Idle Weekend out. And we really do appreciate you writing in. Our letters are consistently just the best letters on any podcast ever. I love them. I really, really appreciate sort of the 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 sort of level of discourse that is brought all the time. People bring wonderful stories and they bring interesting questions. And we really, really do appreciate that. So thank you so much. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends.